All right, a uh, couple of uh, housekeeping items before we dive into the text today. I'm not going to chide everybody on the low attendance today. I've seen some bad, uh, empty audit emptier auditoriums on Memorial Day, but nothing like this before. I assume you're all just camping, enjoying the, enjoying the wilderness, whatever. No, of course I jest. We really uh, do long for the time we can be together, and hopefully uh, we'll be able to do that in, in some form soon. The elders will have more information on kind of um, what it will look like when we win and how we can begin to gather together in some form in, in, in the future. Um, they'll have more information on that um, uh, next week. Uh, but a couple of housekeeping items for today are uh, send in your uh, video submissions for the uh, little montage that we've been showing after the service. It's so fun to get to see you guys. Uh, in that every week. It's one of the highlights uh, for, for me personally. So the theme this week is to show us what you've been doing uh, during this shutdown time. What have you been doing for the last two months? Uh, have you been baking a lot of bread? Did you put a, like a deck on in, in your backyard? Did you teach your kids the Greek alphabet? I know, I'm, I'm sure plenty of you have. I know my uh, my friend Jairus, Jairus Brenneyes, has been working on growing uh, the most epic mustache in Pierce County. So uh, if you want to send a video of that, Jairus, show everyone the uh, the beautiful curl you got going on there. That would be lovely. What what have you been doing? So uh, you can pause the live stream now, go shoot that video, and then press play, and I'm going to be right here. I'm not going anywhere. So if you want to do that, send in your submission. Uh, the other thing that you can do right now, too, uh, oh, by the way, where, where you send that to, you email it to Laura Nihus, and her email um, uh, is back on the slides uh, at the beginning of the service if you want to scroll back to there. Uh, the, the other thing that you can do is we have a handout of notes for today's sermon uh, that's available on the FBC website. So if you go to, uh, you can open up a new window, go to fbctacoma.org, and you can download that PDF right now if you want to have that uh, as we go through the, the sermon. It's not mandatory, but I know a lot of you really like to have something to scratch on or, or, or look at, whatever. So that's, that's available for you as well if, if you want to look at that. But now, we're going to dive into the very end of John 11 through chapter 12. And as I was studying this uh, the last few weeks, the question that was coming into my mind a lot is, what does it mean to believe in Jesus? Has that question crossed your mind before? What does it mean to believe in Jesus? Maybe it's coming to your mind as we've been going through uh, the gospel of, of John here, because over and over in this story, John stresses the vital importance of believing in, in, in Jesus. It's the, it's the theme of the entire book. You know, some, some scholars call John the gospel of belief. That's one of the titles of one of the, the commentaries I look at, John the gospel of belief. Just think of um, John 3.16, the most, you know, famous verse in this book, possibly the most fav famous verse in all the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him, will not perish, but have eternal life. So believing being the, the key qualifier there, the means by which we uh, latch on to this, this gift of, of eternal life from God through Jesus. Uh, really, this is why uh, John says he wrote this gospel in the first place. He said, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. Believe, believe, believe. That's the call of the book. So what exactly does 
believing mean? And how do you know, like, oh, wait, how have I done this in regard to Jesus? Like, how do you evaluate yourself in the, in the realm of belief? Because another big theme that we see throughout the Gospel of John is uh, this theme of fickle faith. Uh, that, that by, and I'm using quotes when I say faith there or belief because I don't even know if you should call it faith or belief. It's maybe more like enthusiasm or, or interest in, in regard to Jesus. This kind of um, interest in him that does not result all the way in eternal life. Partial belief, I guess you could call it. Self-interested belief. In, in some cases, as we see, we go through the gospel. A faith that doesn't last. A faith that doesn't lead to life. Again, we see this uh, all throughout the gospel of John. Think back to chapter 2. This is kind of the first point in the book where a lot of people are said to be believing in Jesus. His first trip to, to Jerusalem. And it, it, again, it says they believed in Jesus, but Jesus did not entrust himself to them or put his faith in them because he could see into their hearts that there was something about their faith that was incomplete. Same in chapters 6 and 7, where Jesus, you know, he feeds the 5,000. Uh, they, they, they believe in him. They want to make him their king, you know, and have him go to, to, to Jerusalem right then and there, kick out the Romans and, and launch, the, launch the kingdom of God as they saw it. But in the very next chapter, after hearing him teach some more, they, they all abandon him. These, these same people that wanted to make him king, they, they all leave him in so much so the fact that Jesus turns to his 12 disciples and says, hey, are you guys going to leave me too? And then again in chapter 8, which we just taught on like a month ago, uh, we have this crowd that is hearing and seeing all these extraordinary things uh, that Jesus is doing at the Feast of Tabernacles, these dramatic announcements he's making. The, uh, The text says that many believed in him. And then later on, by the end of the chapter, Jesus has called these same people children of the devil. And at the very end, they're picking up rocks to stone Jesus. So fickle faith, pseudo-belief, we see this throughout uh, the Gospel of John. It's a dangerous reality that he wants us to be aware of. Uh, And this is a reality we see maybe the most clearly and most vividly and memorably in our chapter right here today. And that's because in in the section that we're looking at right here, John 11, 55 through 12, 19, we not only see what I think you could call classify as fickle faith or, or that pseudo-belief, we also see the real deal. We also see uh, authentic belief side by side with this pseudo-belief. And, and I think that contrast right there is very instructive for all of us. We've got uh, two primary stories in our passage today. The first is the anointing of Jesus by Mary, the sister of Lazarus. And then the second is the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. So those are the two main stories. A couple of sub-scenes in there involving uh, plotting by the the Jewish leaders and, and, you know, how they're going to try to catch Jesus. So there's four scenes in total that you have on on the handout. But really, those are the two dominant narratives in our text today. And what's interesting is, you know, when you're reading and reflecting on these scenes side by side— is, is we see that striking juxtaposition of real belief and, and shallow belief right there, kind of as uh, contrasting panels in an in art installation or, or something like that. And taken together, what I, you know, I, I think these two scenes, these two stories really give us a fascinating point-counterpoint answer to our question this morning, which is what does it really mean to believe in Jesus? And how can I look at myself 
and evaluate where I am right now in regard to that. So let's get rolling. We're going to um, start with scene number one of the, the first narrative, which is Passover, purification, and plotting. Verse 55 of chapter 11. Now, the Passover of the Jews was at hand. This would be the, you know, the major festival celebrating the redemption of God's people from Egypt, celebrated with the feast and unleavened, of unleavened bread and all that. The Jews uh, still practice this to, to this day. And many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. This is what uh, they had to do, according to the book of Numbers, if, if they had come in contact you know, with a dead body uh, or, or uh, been in trade with Gentiles, eating unkosher food, something that would make them unclean. They could still celebrate the Passover. That's what, what the instructions say in the book of Numbers, but they needed to perform some of these cleansing rituals at the temple first. So this kind of turns into a, like a pre-Passover party get-together for a lot of these people who are traveling to Jerusalem. Verse 56, they were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple waiting to get purified, hey, what do you think? That he's not going to come to the feast at all? So a little more context for this scene, and that you got to remember that Jesus is not in Jerusalem at this time. In the verses um, right before this, the, the part uh, Randy ended with last week, we read that Jesus became aware that these leaders in Jerusalem were seeking to put him to death, so he quietly withdraws uh, from the area. He went to Ephraim, uh, which is you know just a tiny town on the, the, the edge of the wilderness, and there he stayed with his disciples. So that's where we, we ended last week. So, I, you know, when, when we cut to vis, verse 55 here, it's almost like a meanwhile back in Jerusalem uh, sort of transition. So Jesus is not actually in this scene. He's not even in the city, but without a doubt, he is still the buzz of the town. This does not make the rulers happy. Verse 57, now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, that would be Jesus, knew where Jesus was, he, the informant, should let them know so that they might arrest him. So you see how these scenes kind of set a backdrop for uh, our stories here today. There is electricity in the air above Jerusalem. Storm clouds are, are gathering. You get the sense that things are building. Something's about to happen. And that sense of anticipation just continues to swell in scene two, verse one of chapter 12, a dinner party. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So you just kind of kind of stop here and, and look, because it it's crazy to realize it, but based on that time marker that John gives us right there, six days before the Passover, as, as this section opens, chapter 12 of John, we are less than a week before the cross. It, it's crazy because if you're holding a physical Bible right now, you can see that we're still only halfway through the book of John, you know, just barely over halfway, uh, really. And, and, and half the book, you know, covers pretty much just those first three public years of Jesus's ministry. And the other half covers the last week of his life. I mean, that is a striking imbalance if you look at it. You see the same uh, imbalance in the other three gospels as well. This, this last week of Jesus's life, what scholars call the, the passion narratives, that gets a huge amount of ink compared to everything else Jesus says and does. It's clearly uh, structurally the focus of the writers. This is what the gospels 
are about. This is what makes them so different from any other biographies uh, that we read from this time. Because in most ancient biographies, the death of the person, the death of the subject of that biography, I mean, it's not even mentioned. It was seen as, you know, shameful or, or dishonorable to, uh, to focus on that aspect of the person rather than their uh, extraordinary life and accomplishments. If their death was mentioned at all, it was, you know, like euphemized, kind of glossed over. The, the, these, you know, biographies of Jesus that we have from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're just so, they, they do the opposite of that. You can tell they're all about Jesus's death and, and what it means. Like the cross is the focus of them from the get-go. And this last week of Jesus's life just dominates uh, the entire structure. Some have even called these um, four gospels that we have in our Bibles, passion narratives with extended introductions. That's, that's how you could, could think about them, really. So, so strong is that focus on the cross and the tomb. And right now, right here in chapter 12 of John, that passion narrative is beginning. We are just six days, six days before Passover, six days before the cross. Verse two. So they gave a dinner for him there. That would be in Bethany. Martha served and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. That word so, or therefore, is another way that you could translate it. Really, it's indicating the why of this dinner celebration. It's because this is the place where Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead in the previous story. This is, uh, you know, the first time Jesus is back here after he's been away for a while. So they throw him a dinner to, to, to honor him. We see that Martha is there serving, consistent with her character that we read in uh, the other Gospels. Uh, but this time, you should notice, un- unlike the other story we have of, of Martha and Mary, she is not rebuked at all for having like a bad attitude for, for being the one serving here. She seems to have gotten that all ironed out. So uh, thumbs up for, for Martha. And I love this other little detail that John throws in right there, and that is that Lazarus is one of the guests who is reclining with Jesus at the table. This is kind of like a little stamp. Yes, he is most definitely really raised from the dead. And it's just got to be so wild for, for everyone at the party to, you know, to, to see this. Because uh, last chapter, we've got, you know, Lazarus lying in the tomb. And, and Martha is worried about his body stinking because it's been in there for four days. And now here we've got Martha and Lazarus again. And this time, Lazarus is reclining at the table. And Martha is just, you know, worried about keeping his dinner plate full. It's just, I love the little way John throws that wink in there for us. But even that... The fact that you've got a formerly dead living man there is not the most memorable part of this particular dinner. Verse 3, Mary therefore, and Mary, this would be, there's a lot of Marys in the Gospels. This is the Mary who is uh, the sister of Lazarus. Not Mary, Jesus' mother, not Mary Magdalene. This is Mary uh, who is Lazarus' sister. She took a pound, really about 12 ounces liquid, of expensive ointment made from pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So this is a, a powerfully symbolic and, and really highly unusual thing that Mary's doing right here. The text says uh, ointment. Uh, I don't really like that translation. Better probably would be perfumed oil or something like that because ointment this wasn't medicinal this wasn't something like you rub on your knee because you know 
you, you got a sore knee, so put some ointment on it or something like that. This is, this is ceremonial. This is um, oil that is used to honor someone when you, when you want to give them the highest honor that you possibly could. And then you couple that with the wiping of Jesus's feet with, with her hair. I mean, this is something that no one at this house expected to happen at this dinner party. And this is something that no one would forget. Mary's making a scene here. John obviously remembered it very well himself. I think that's why he includes that um, unique, another little unique John detail there about this, uh, the whole house being filled with the, the, the scent of the perfume. This is another one of those eyewitness type details we see in John that just remind us he was there and that smell, that was all, everything about this was vivid and, and memorable for him as someone who experienced it. This is a dramatic act of devotion. It is extravagant, unexpected way to honor Jesus, and uh, not everyone is happy about it. Verse 4, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And I know Judas is the bad guy. We, we know that. John makes it clear. Even the first time he mentions him earlier in the gospel, he says, this is the guy who's going to betray him. Like, we know that about Judas uh, from the beginning. But, I mean, really, right here, this is a pretty pragmatic and understandable concern that he voices on his part. Matthew and Mark actually point out when they tell this story that Judas isn't the only one to uh, raise this concern. They attribute it to all the disciples. The disciples were all saying and thinking uh, this same thing that Judas actually uh, voices right here. And they wondered, you know, is this extravagant scene? Isn't this a bit of a waste? Because 300 denarii was, I mean, that was a ridiculous sum of money at this time. I'm going to get into the specifics of that a little bit more uh, at the end when we, when we turn our focus back to this scene for, for application. But just know, I mean, Judas is not wrong on this point. 300 denarii was a lot of money. It could have been used uh, very strategically and effectively in other ways, uh, rather than this just, you know, all at once display of honor sort of thing we got going on. Actually, I remember uh, sitting next to Cheryl Ford one year on my uh, parents' front lawn on a lawn chair. This was the 4th of July. We're all sitting down by my parents' lake. They live on a little lake and watching, you know, the fireworks. And, and, and the, um, the neighbors across the lake always go crazy. They put on a huge fireworks display. And this year, it was just like over the top. You know, it went on for like 20, 30 minutes with all sorts of stuff going off in the air. It felt like a, a professional one. And, and when it was all done, you know, all the neighbors are cheering and stuff. And and we're just kind of in awe. And I remember Cheryl uh, saying something along the lines of, well, you could have just burned a wad of $100 bills right there and had about the same effect. And, and she's right. You know, I mean, that's a lot of money. It's all up in smoke. And where's it gone now? It's, it's, it's burned up. It's, you just got to clean up the burnt fireworks the next day. That's all you've got left of the, the money you spent on that. And that's kind of the sentiment that Judas is expressing right here, which is what Mary just did was beautiful, but, you know, it had zero practical value. What, what Mary just did was pour out money that could have been used, you know, very helpfully for, for, for people in need, and instead it's just, you know, dripping on the floor between Jesus's toes, all that money. Now, as good as that point is, I should say that what John adds in the next verse, kind of parenthetically, is important for us as readers. Verse 6, he, that's Judas, said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. 
So he's an embezzler, basically. He's not, you know, some great champion of the poor here who's thinking of starving children as that oil is, is poured out on Jesus' feet. He is a lover of money. He is thinking of his own pockets. Now, it's interesting. When Jesus responds to this, he doesn't address Judas's heart uh, or his past as a thief in any of this. He keeps the focus on the woman. Here's Jesus' response. Verse 7, Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Very interesting response from Jesus here. I want, to, I want us to notice three things about it. Okay, the, the first thing, and this may be, is one that we should just hardly, it, it may hardly be worth acknowledging, but it's, I think I should say it out loud, is that Jesus is not uh, trying to say that helping the poor is unimportant or, or a waste of time. That's, uh, that, that, that's a way that you could understand his words at the end there, for the poor you always have with you. Like, like you know, who cares about the poor people? They're always going to be around. Just let them do their thing. You, you, you focus on, you know, honoring me and that's it. No, that is not at all consistent with what we see about Jesus's um, life and message throughout the gospels, where he prioritizes the needs of poor people, where he um, actually makes giving to the poor and, and helping the poor uh, a mandatory part of, of being one of his followers. So and also inconsistent with what we see about the heart of God throughout the rest of scripture. Although from, from beginning to end of the Bible, you see uh, this very real concern for the poor. So that's not what Jesus is trying to say here. What he is saying is that G- Mary had this unique opportunity right here, right, right then and there to honor Jesus in the flesh, and she took advantage of it, and that was the right thing to do right then and there. You do not always have me is how Jesus gets that across. And this would be confusing for the people right here. That's, that's the second thing we should notice about this, that, that everyone in attendance hearing this would probably think, what? Be scratching their heads. We won't always have you, Jesus. What are you, t- what are you talking about? I mean, he's at like the, the height of his popularity right now. He's the buzz of the city, the triumphal entries the next day. What? what? And then you couple that with what he said right before this, where he said that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Why is Jesus talking about burial here? This is a, I mean, this is a dinner party. It's, it's thrown in his honor, and he just raised a guy from the dead. So now he's speaking of his own death, and, and what Mary did uh, somehow uh, is a foreshadow of the anointing of his body for burial. I mean, this is, this is cryptic. This is ominous. Where is where's Jesus going with this? Is I think what everybody there would wonder. One last thing to notice about this before we move uh, to the next scene in our text today, and that would be just uh, Jesus's tenderness in all this. You know, Jesus, uh, he's standing up for Mary here publicly. He's, he's defending what she did when perhaps many of uh, others of us would not have, have done so. Leave her alone is, is how he starts this. And I know it's not, it's, it's not super obvious for all of us to see right now in our modern uh, cultural setting, but what Mary did here was, was weird, really, really highly unusual and potentially embarrassing and awkward for Jesus as the one who's receiving this anointing, this, this you know, pouring out the expensive oil, then wiping uh, his feet with her hair publicly. I mean, all of this was a, a violation of the social norms at the time, big time. We're going to get into more of that 
later as well. And there is just no doubt that there would be raised eyebrows and whispers after the shock of what Mary did wore off right here. Yet Jesus does not shame this woman. Uh, He doesn't make her feel foolish for doing this extravagant act of, of, of devotion. He honors her. He, he accepts uh, this action from her as, as holy and as worship, as significant even beyond w- what the woman intended, I think, by pointing to his burial and his, his ultimate resurrection. You know, I was discussing this, this aspect of the passage uh, earlier this week with my, my friend, former Greek professor uh, Russ, Russ Glessner, er, and, and, and what he said was this, this scene right here reminded him uh, of a time many years back, way in the past, at, at a different church where he was teaching uh, the young marrieds class for the, for the people at his church. And one young woman in the class was so grateful for uh, Russ's work in, in teaching them that she decided to honor him by presenting him with a uh, boutonniere flower arrangement uh, before church the next week. Now, I should say that, that Russ is not a boutonniere kind of guy. All the men were wearing, you know, suits to the church at this time, but none of the dudes were sporting flowers <laughs> uh, on their lapels. And, and, and so none of them also would know why it is that Russ is suddenly, you know, decided to wear a boutonniere to church that day or whatever. They didn't know the context of the class or that she's given this to him, you know, before the service, any of that. So what was Russ going to do? Well, he, he wore that boutonniere. <laughs> the, the entire service. Why? It was to honor the woman by accepting her honor of him. That sort of um, attitude and heart is, is, is what we see from Jesus here, I think. I mean, we, we should have no doubt that this is once again Jesus showing all of us the, the tender, uh, loving heart of God toward all those who seek to honor him. I find that very encouraging. So on to scene three, which is more plotting. Verse nine. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Now this part, like (laughs) when you read this, it almost makes you want to chuckle because it's like, wait, what? The chief priests have decided to try to put Lazarus to death? Not like to to prison or to exile or something like that. Like, didn't they hear what happened last time this guy died? (laughs) I I would think they would try a different strategy. I mean, if you want to cause a major stir, get a lot of people leaving and, and following Jesus, well, have him raise somebody from the dead twice. See, see what happens then. Nevertheless, uh, Lazarus now has a target on his back. And if the chief priests are distressed about Jesus' rising popularity now, just wait till the next scene, scene four, the triumphal entry. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast, these would be all the pilgrims from all over Israel who flooded into Jerusalem for the Passover, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey 
and sat on it. We know that's a major understatement. They have a, you know, like a whole chapter devoted to the finding of the donkey in the other gospels. John just says he found it. And Jesus sat on it just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb. So this would be the crowd from Bethany. We've got a a few different crowds kind of converging here and raised him from the dead. They continued to bear witness saying, hey, this is the guy who raised Lazarus from the dead. It's amazing. You should honor Jesus. Verse 18, the reason why the crowd went to meet him, this would be the crowd from Jerusalem now, was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So I guess I can say, uh, you know, welcome to your belated Palm Sunday sermon. I know uh, we kind of missed Palm Sunday this year. It was right in the thick of themes, things in terms of the uh, uh, COVID-19 shutdown and where we were in the, the book of John. We weren't quite here to the gates of Jerusalem yet, but, but we're here now. We've got Jesus riding into Jerusalem in triumph as a conquering king. Or is he? That's that's why I put a question mark in the title of this scene, because you can tell that that really not everyone is on the same page here with, with what is going down. I mean, the crowd definitely sees this as a moment of triumph. There's no question about that. That's why they're quoting Psalm 118 there. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I mean, Psalm 118, it is this, it's a salvation song. It's a song of triumph, a song of the the Messiah. That's why also the the crowd shouts, Hosanna. I mean, that literally means save now, Lord. It's it's a cry for salvation, of uh, expectation of of, of deliverance. And and the political nature of this deliverance is definitely emphasized in, in what they add to Psalm 118. This is not in in the original Psalm when they say, even the king of Israel. That right there lets us know what this crowd is really hoping for. They are hoping for Jesus to be their king in a political sense, to ride into Jerusalem at the head of an army and kick out the Romans and to bring Israel to this place of independence and, 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 and prominence again. This is what they've been waiting for since, you know, chapter six of John, when Jesus multiplied the bread and they wanted to make him uh, king by force. This is force. This is what they've been waiting for generation after generation as they read uh, the Old Testament prophecies. They're waiting for the return of the king. They're, they're, They're waiting for once more God to raise up a deliverer, a monarch in the line of David to sit on the throne in Jerusalem for all these Old Testament prophecies about victory and prosperity for, for Israel to come sweeping into the present. And if anyone can do that, it's got to be this guy who raises the dead. That's what they're thinking here. This is the mood of the crowd that day. It's their eager expectation. And keep in mind, uh, Passover, that's the backdrop for everything that happens in this week of Jesus's life. Passover, this was uh, the great festival of the freeing of the slaves. This is when, when God used his power and his might to, you know, crush the Egyptians and, and bring his people to freedom freedom from tyranny. This is like what the festival was all about. And here on the eve of the feast comes the new Moses, the new deliverer, God's instrument to set his people free. And it's like everybody is hopping aboard this freedom train. Look, the world has gone after him is what the rival leaders say in their frustration. This is 
clearly the moment of Jesus' victory. This has got to be the hour of his glory. Or is it? Because John inserts something unexpected into the middle of this scene, and an aside which is just to the readers, really, a break from all the action of the, the parade and all that to, to kind of give us a note of explanation. Verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. And what John's referring to specifically is the verse he had just shared from Zechariah right there in verse 15. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now keep in mind, it's not the crowd shouting this verse. They're they're shouting that previous one from Psalm 118. They're not saying this. It's John writing in this verse later as the narrator, this, this prophecy that Jesus fulfilled that they only understood after the fact, after Jesus had been glorified. And two things should really under, should stand out to us in this explanatory note. One is the donkey. Okay, a donkey. I know, I know we don't ride a lot of animals in our culture regularly, but a donkey is not the ride of a conquering king. Okay, this, this cultural significance would not be lost uh, on, on the people in a, in a more agrarian context who are reading this book. You know, if you had Jesus riding in on a war horse, oh, that'd be perfect. That's what general, that's what a Roman general would ride. They had these huge charger war horses that they would, that they would ride on. If you had him on a chariot, I mean, man, even better. It's like Ben-Hur style. That's how a king should roll into Jerusalem, right? But a donkey, really? And not just, not just any donkey. The, uh, the Greek term is for like a little donkey, a donkeyling, a, a, you know, right here, the, the full, the full, the cult of a donkey. You know, your mode of transportation says something about you, especially if you're in a symbolic uh, celebratory situation like this, like a parade or something, right? Think of it in terms of today's transportation. If that, that prophecy had said, hey, behold, here comes your king riding in a Cadillac. That would, that would say something about your king, right? And, and about his character, the nature of his kingdom, his kingship. Or how about this? Behold, here comes your king riding in a tank or a Hummer or a Black Hawk helicopter. You know, all of these would say something about the nature of your king and who he is, what he's about. But what if the prophecy said, behold, here comes your king riding in a Ford Taurus with one taillight burned out. That would also say something about the nature of this king and the nature of his kingdom, right? The donkey in this day, it was the most average of average forms of animal transportation. It was the commuter car of the day. It was a vehicle of peace, not of war. You don't, you don't ride a donkey, you know, at the front of your, front of your army. It was, it was the beast of humility, not of, of pomp, of, of commerce, not uh, revolution. And, and right here, Jesus is riding a little donkey. Yeah, nobody seems to notice, right? That's, that's the second thing that jumps out in this explanatory note right here. The fact that nobody realized the significance of this while it was going down, not even the disciples. Even we didn't get it, is, is what, what John is saying. Even we, Jesus's 12 disciples, we were getting caught up in the hosannas and the palm branches. Even we thought that this was the hour of Jesus's glory. But as the next paragraph makes clear, when Jesus talks to the Greeks and then beyond that, as we continue to progress through this last week of Jesus's life, the hour of Jesus's honor, when he is glorified truly and most fully, it will not involve palm branches 
you know, waved in his honor, but it's going to involve whips slapping him on the back. His hour of glory is not going to involve people uh, removing their cloaks to lay on his path, but it's going to involve soldiers stripping his cloak to expose him in shame. His hour of glory, it's not going to involve a crowd uh, shouting Hosanna, but a different crowd shouting, crucify him. It will involve a crown, certainly, but it's going to be a crown that's made out of thorns, which he wears as he's crucified under a sign that says, the king of the Jews. That is the hour of Jesus's glory. That is when we see his greatness most clearly. It's all going to become clear as we go through the next few chapters. But before we leave this right here, I'd I'd like us to reflect just a little bit on our earlier question. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? Because just like the whole book of John, belief is all over the place in this story, in these two scenes. You've got these people leaving and believing in Jesus, is, is what the text says, leaving Judaism to believe in Jesus. You've got the crowd shouting Hosanna. That's a reflection of some sort of belief, right? You've got this crowd testifying about Lazarus. That's a belief in what Jesus had done there. You've got the whole world following after Jesus as the Pharisees see it. But what kind of belief is this? Is it real? Is it authentic? Is it based on the truth of who Jesus is and what he's about? Or are these more examples of this kind of fickle faith that John has warned us about time and time again in this gospel? You know, for our purposes here today, I think there's only one example that we can point to with any certainty, and that is the belief of Mary expressed in her anointing of Jesus. Again, John is not the only one to tell this story. Matthew and Mark both tell this story as well. And when they tell it, they note that Jesus said this as well when he defended the woman. He said, truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. That's extraordinary. Can you, can you uh, imagine a, a higher endorsement from Jesus of a particular action than that? That wherever the gospel is proclaimed, even right here, digitally, from Tacoma to wherever it is that you're sitting, right now we're telling this story and remembering what she did on that night, that dinner party. That's extraordinary. Why? Why should this story keep being told and retold when we share the message of Jesus? I think what Jesus is is highlighting here is that what Mary did should serve as an example to us all. An example of of what authentic belief looks like. How true devotion to Jesus is expressed in what she did right there. Not the, uh, you know, enthusiasm of a crowd that's looking for a warlord deliverer, but the devotion of someone who treasures Jesus above all else simply for who he is. That's it. This authentic belief shown by Mary right here in this passage means seeing Jesus for who he really is and honoring him as he truly deserves. So what does that look like? 
Let me highlight three aspects of, of, of Mary's anointing here, three aspects of, um, three qualities of, of, of what she did that I think point us to what authentic belief looks like, what it looks like when someone really believes in Jesus and that's lived out by his people. So the first aspect I'd like us to look at is that her belief right here is expressed without regard for material cost. Because again, that oil that, that Mary used for this, that was ridiculously expensive stuff. As John notes, he calls it pure nard oil. So the pure meaning this was authentic. It wasn't diluted or cut with a different type of oil to kind of inflate it. No, this was pure, pure stuff. And nard, meaning that it was, it was derived from this plant that we have right here, the spike nard plant. Uh, this plant grows only in northern India between 3,000 and 5,000 feet of elevation. So it's not easy to harvest it. Then after you harvest it, it goes through this um, extensive process of extraction uh, to get the oil out of each plant. Then the oil was imported to Rome where it was sold at extremely high cost and used just a little bit at a time uh, for special ceremonies when you wanted to honor someone, ceremonial purposes. So again, Judas notes, as you remember, that that oil that Mary used was somewhere in the 300 denarii range. To put this in perspective, one denarius was a day's wage in that day for a, for a common laborer. So 300 denarii, if, if, if you're looking at, I, that, that's a year's wage for a common worker. If you subtract the days off, you would take one day off a week for a Sabbath, a few other weeks off, you know, for the different Jewish festivals. You got 300 days wages in a year. That's how much value. Was, was in that little jar she had. It says it's a Roman, it was a, a litra, which is literally 12 ounces, size of a pop can. And that's a year's wage right there in that little container. Very likely this jar of this oil that Mary had was, was a family heirloom. You know, there weren't like big banks in those days. So if you wanted to pass down significant sums of wealth from generation to generation, you, you would use, you, it would be in some sort of treasure or, or a good like this. This may have been a gift that was passed down to her on her wedding day, something like that. And she's got this treasured jar and something overcomes her this night. But she decides she's going to take all of that and pour it out on Jesus. Matthew notes when he tells the story that when she anointed Jesus, she actually broke the neck of the jar, meaning she's going she's gonna to pour it all out upon him. Every last drop, a year's wage, dripping down onto the floorboards between Jesus' toes. I mean, you cannot help but contrast that attitude of, of Mary, of extravagant giving to try to honor Jesus with, with the attitude of Judas who in both Matthew and Mark, it's right after this scene where Judas goes and bargains with the Jewish leaders for the price that he'll be paid for betraying Jesus. Right after this, he goes and does that. After all the haggling, he ends up at 30 pieces of silver. I mean, you can hardly buy a tablespoon of this oil for, for that amount that he's willing to betray Jesus for. Yet Mary pours out an entire jar of it just to give Jesus honor. What a striking contrast. That is what authentic belief looks like. When you come to see Jesus as more valuable than absolutely anything you have, and even if you poured out all of your wealth in one 
grade act of devotion. Everything in your retirement accounts, all the equity in your house, everything that you have in the bank account, all your possessions, if you could just pour that all out on Jesus' feet, it would be worth it because you've come to value him more than absolutely anything else. That's who Jesus is. That's what Mary believes. That's what she expresses right here. Second aspect of Mary's belief. It's expressed without regard to the social cost. You see this part most clearly in the um, wiping of Jesus' feet with Mary's hair. I mean, it was highly unusual uh, for a Jewish woman to do something like this. It was highly unusual for a Jewish woman to ever even unbind her hair in, in public. It was always worn up and it was always worn under like a shawl or, or a veil sort of thing most commonly. Some people, uh, it's written, wouldn't even uh, take down their hair in the privacy of their own home for, for fear of em- embarrassment or like that a neighbor would walk in or something. The story is told uh, of a Jewish woman at this time who all three of her sons went on to become high priest and, and they asked her, you know, to what do you attribute this extraordinary favor from God that he's allowing all three of your sons to become high priests at, at, at different times? And she said, it's because the beams of my house never saw the top of my head. Meaning she always kept her hair up she always kept her head covered, even when she was at home. That's, that's how much of a, like a sign of piety it was. Yet Mary, and this remarkably bold expression of, of really countercultural belief, she unbinds her hair in front of everyone to wipe the feet of Jesus. You know, I can't help but contrast this with uh, the attitude of Peter that we see just a few chapters after this when he's, you know, standing by a campfire, Jesus has been arrested, and a servant girl says, hey, weren't you, weren't you traveling with Jesus? Other people are watching. The social pressure is on Peter. And Peter denies ever knowing Jesus. Mary is showing what authentic belief looks like right here, the kind of belief that values Jesus's opinion above all others, the kind of belief that expresses devotion to Jesus without regard to what other people are going to think, what others will say, what others may do. Mary is showing us the focus of someone whose only heart is to honor Jesus because she believes that's how great and how worthy he is. That's what authentic belief looks like. Final quality for today, And that is this belief that we see from Mary is expressed without regard for personal pride. You know, she didn't just anoint Jesus' head with this oil. She anointed his feet and then wiped them with her hair. This is not the job of of a dignified woman. This was the job of the lowliest slave in the house, the bottom of, uh, of the barrel. That's who, who would wash the feet in those days. Feet would get dirty from, from traveling around. And this was, uh, this was something uh, that not even students of a rabbi, they were, they were supposed to take care of all their rabbi's needs at this time. But the one job that was written that it was not, that students of a rabbi did not have to do was wash his feet. That's how far below it was, the average person. Yet in expressing her devotion to Jesus, Mary decides she's going to put herself right at the bottom of the barrel in contrast to him. She's saying, this is who I am in relationship to you. I'm just the lowliest slave. And again, you got to contrast this, I think, with the attitude of the disciples, which we read in the other gospels as they're traveling to Jerusalem. 
They're arguing about who will be the greatest, about who is going to get the places of honor next to Jesus when he comes into his kingdom. And here we have Mary doing exactly the opposite, taking the lowest place for herself because next to Jesus, she knows that's where all of us are. That's how great he is. Or I think of just a few chapters after this where Jesus has to teach the disciples to wash each other's feet. He has to teach them that. But here, Mary does it on her own, completely unprompted, washing his feet, not just with water, but with incredibly costly perfume. That is what humility looks like. This is the kind of belief that you express when you see Jesus for how great he truly is, so high, so exalted, that next to him, every single one of us is the lowliest slave in the house. And really, I think that is the key to all of this, to having this kind of true, authentic belief. It's seeing Jesus as he truly is. You know, you can't get this kind of belief through like self-willed effort, okay? Or just, you can't generate this kind of humility and devotion to Jesus by just gritting your teeth and being determined about it. That's not going to do anything. This kind of belief comes from having your eyes opened to seeing Jesus as he truly is, that he is the treasure hidden in the field, that he is the pearl of great price, that he is the one worth giving up everything for and finding out that when you do, you still come out ahead. That's how great Jesus is. That's, that is the point of all this. Because, you know, what Mary does is it's not really a testimony to how great Mary is or how, you know, we should all aspire to be like Mary. That's not why this story is going to be told all throughout the world, wherever the gospel is preached. It's because what Mary does shows us without a doubt how great Jesus is. And in giving up everything for Jesus, she is showing us exactly what Jesus deserves. Pray with me, please, and then let's worship our Lord together. Holy Father, we do thank you for your son, Jesus. He is a treasure. He is a gift. Thank you for what you have done for us through him. Forgive us for when we don't honor him the way that we ought. Forgive us for the times uh, that we even... Uh, treat Jesus and treat the work of Jesus as um, something we take for granted, something we want to leverage for our own interests. Open our eyes by your spirit, Father. Help us to see his glory. Help us to see his beauty. And having done so, to honor him as he truly deserves. And may other people look at our own lives, our neighbors around us, our fellow believers. May other people look at our own lives of, of sacrificial devotion, of us pouring out ourselves, pouring out our goods, for, for the glory and the honor of Jesus. May they see that and get just a glimpse of your greatness revealed through him. It's in the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.